Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun. Day or night. So when you call up that shrink in Beverly Hills, you know the one. Doctor, everything will be alright. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, well, it's it's Thursday. Yeah, we, um, we were supposed to do something else, but we're doing this. That's good. We are, and we've got, uh, we've got Babul Gashish to come in tomorrow. Yeah, no, full week, and uh, looking forward got to Got something that. coming Monday. Yeah, no, we're, uh, well, we said we, at our last episode... Uh, which I don't know if anyone else liked, but you and I enjoyed it. We thought it was quite good. We immensed it. So it's kind of like sometimes my favorite sermons are the ones I only I like. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, but we said we had a full queue and it keeps, uh, it just keeps building. I mean, sometimes, I, you know, we often talk about the news, but it's just, it's like a fire hose. Uh, it is. Yeah. It is. So I, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, one of the things I do think is really, I mean, because um, because of the nature of the White House, uh, and because also of the nature of the way the news is fixated on a fairly narrow band of information, we don't realize the kind of trade deals that China and Russia have made in the Far East. You know, we got out of that Far East bill, uh, the trade bill, and China stepped right in. They're building a new transportation uh, thing that will take goods from from the Far East all into Central Europe, and so. Uh, they're very well. They're very involved in Africa and uh, all over the world, really. And so, I, I just think it's it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of serious things going on. There are a million people at risk uh, for starvation, both in uh, Sudan and in Yemen, uh, I believe. <clears throat> and we're not really talking about that either. So, that's one of the things I think it's unfortunate. There's a lot of things going on in this country, but uh, we do have a travel ban. Uh, one from the State Department, one from the NAACP. Uh, any of you planning to go to North Carolina? Or, I'm sorry, any of you planning on going to North Korea? Do not do that. North Carolina's fine. But the NAACP... It is hot there, though, right now. I mean, uh, well, if you know, honest, it's, it's not at the heat. It's the humidity that kills you, North yeah, Carolina. Yeah, well, I was in the mountains. So it was great last week. So please go to North Carolina. Oh, that's true. Do not go to North Korea. And uh, the NAACP just issued a, a travel warning for people of color uh, in the state of Missouri. The first ever time they've done that because there's a new law passed by the state legislature that makes it harder to be convicted or sued of racial discrimination. So obviously that's a political move, but it's hot in Missouri too. Any of you traveling through Missouri, be careful. Yeah. And use sunscreen anywhere you are in the continent right. or any, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, um, yep. There, uh, there is a lot of, uh, not good things happening to your skin if you don't do that. Skin cancers, it's, that's not, it's nothing to trifle no, with. I know people have died from it, so it's not good. Yeah. But anyway, those are our health warning and our travel warnings. Uh, if you're driving in the greater Philadelphia area right now, there's a lot of water coming down, so be careful as well. Also, you should 
I posted this today. You sh- if you eat yogurt twice a day, there's studies that it can help your brain. I know. I saw that. So I, I found some yogurt and had it. Today. I did. I only had one, but I, I didn't eat two. <laughs> so yet, we can only be happy. So what we've done, we've done some community service here. We've done. Eggs uh, are also good for you. Travel, you know, travel warnings, uh, weather update, and your health tip. So um, that's all. We at New Persuasive Words are trying to serve you in ways that. We do what we can. I mean, we, we do what we can. We do. With the limited resources we have, we do, we, we we do, do. what we can. And with our limited perspective. Exactly. Both of what you're <laughs> that's why we. That's why we need New Persuasive Words. Small uh, finitude. We're taking a quick break to ask you a question which you can interpret as you will. Do you like this podcast? Do you love it? Do you just listen to it to shout at us? But do you want it to keep going? If so, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. If you do, whatever your motivation, we will read your name out on the thank you roll call, which will begin right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. And there you can find information about how to give. If you give just five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future. Thanks again to sponsors. And please, if you like this podcast, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. And now back to the show. So we, I dug something up from, I guess, the 50s, I think. This is what I, I shared with you and a friend of ours, an essay by T.S. Eliot in a book of essays about revelation in the modern world. And it's interesting. I mean, like... Uh, Oldham, Bart, other uh, uh, Gustav Alin. I mean, there's some major 20th century theologians who were kind of involved in ecumenical conversation. You have a book of, of essays. But T.S. Eliot has the introduction. He says, actually, he's writing an introduction to the subject, and it's because he is not a theologian that he was, he was asked to contribute the introductory essay on the meaning of Revelation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's in part inspired of some of the things we were talking about, both uh, in last week's Bulls Kashista, both uh, that we recorded and what we didn't record about the whole issue of, uh, you know, teaching people the Bible and what critical issues need to be engaged. And uh, this really is a great essay. You know, I was thinking if you were teaching a intellectual history of the 20th century, there's a lot of summary right in here in this, this little essay gives you the background of an awful lot of really interesting debate, kind of a, an intellectual cultural history around the issues of secularism and religion and such that was going on, particularly in England, but also engaged with France in the middle of the 20th century. It's pretty interesting stuff. And he has this great line, or is it that he says, basically, I, I should have really talked about more. I should have, I should have talked about Heidegger and Schleiermacher and Feuerbach and this and that. And he's, but, you know, I thought it better if I just wrote the stuff that was in my head. <laughs> Fresh. Oh, yeah. He says, um, I know I should have, ought to have said some, uh, something to say about Stephen George and certainly Max Scheler and possibly Friedrich Gondorf. I ought to have given a succinct historical kind of how things came to be as they are without failing to give due space to Schopenhauer, Wagner, and Nietzsche. I should touch upon Schleiermacher and Feuerbach, and I should have a long note about a footnote about logical positivism, speculating how much it is to G.E. Moore on the one hand, and Brentano, Husserl, Meinong, and Heidegger on the other. But this is a paper and not a book. <laughs> That's right. This is a poet writing, by the yeah. way. It seems to me, therefore, proper to use the material that is 
ready in my mind without either taking time to refresh my memory of authors whom I've read only once or still mug up works that I've never read at all. (laughs) Yeah, he's fine. Uh, You know, this is kind of uh, from the same period, but um, I guess a couple, I don't know, for Christmas a couple years ago, I gave my my third son, John, the complete works of Charles Williams, or at least his complete novels. And he loves that. I mean, we were talking about Charles Williams and that guy's talking about Dorothy Sayers and Tolkien and, and, uh, and C.S. Lewis at uh, the Inglings group. That would have been a fun group to hang out with as long as you didn't have to talk. I would very want, British. I would not want to have to, and Bill, what is your opinion? That would be a very intimidating group to talk to. And so I just, uh, a credible mind T.S. Eliot was. Yeah, I mean, a guy that, yeah. Most important poet of the 20th century, T.S. Eliot? Not the most read, but but maybe the most. I don't know. That's, that's hard a good to question. Say. That, that's such, well, I mean, that's, a, that's it's an interesting question that if we knew more about poetry, we, we, would, we, could answer. we would disagree with Normally each other. Normally that wouldn't stop yeah. us. But. Right. So at this little essay, which I'll try to put a PDF of it in the show, can, I think I can do that. It, it's interesting because he, he does talk about how the... That basically the problem with one of the problems with a kind of it's interesting to you wants to distinguish between the secular age and rational and rationalism because he thinks a lot of 20th century secularism isn't all that rational r- rational like it, right. there's a lot of mysticism superstition and he looks at the problem of revel like revelation and he's thinking here's the christian revelation but but you know it revealed religion in general and 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 sort of state of being without it. And one of these things is he thinks that ends, means become ends in themselves. Like he has a lot to say about morality Mm -hmm. and even things like self-denial, which in a concept of religion and a framework that it paints for the world is, can only at best be a means to an end, not an end in itself. And so what, what various forms of secularism, secularity have to do is take things that are means and make them ends. And so he, yeah. he looks at things like certain concepts around it, even things like wonder or curiosity, which find their telos in the ultimate good, which for Christians is God. He's funny too. He's, he compares some of their stuff to Aristotle. It, it, it's just, you know, the paucity that he finds is really interesting. But some of that is, is what he thinks is a sort of transversal of values yeah. that, that I think it's fair to say he sees it's a little naive. Yeah, you know, and he also kind of, I think, properly foretells that the end result of this is that the human end becomes kind of boredom. I yeah. Mean, yeah, that that's kind of the where this is all going. And I think, um, you know, we are uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time avoiding reality and, and dulling their senses. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, we call it entertainment, but I mean, we are um, we are engaged more in artificial life. So we play virtual hockey. We get all involved in the lives of fictional characters in TV shows. Um, you know, I love, I'm a foodie, I love the food, but um, we become increasingly interested in, you know, really... Um, precision of, you know, and, and elegant coffee. I mean, coffee, you know, getting a cup of coffee no longer is an easy thing to do. And again, I appreciate all these things, um, but it also kind of leads us away 
It doesn't make us better creatures. It doesn't make us higher beings. Uh, we're busy, you know, pleasuring, entertaining, distracting ourselves. And I think it's interesting. T.S. Eliot, um, 60 years ago, anticipates this is what some of the end result of um, the secular project does. Yeah, and what's interesting is he has a, a comment about the difference between socialism and communism. And says that basically what communism has going for it is that it, it might not be able to say what's the end of man, like what's the chief end of, of humankind, humanity, but it can tell you what the ultimate end for individuals ought to be, which is a kind of statism, right. and, which he thinks is for some people, they'll say, he, it's almost like in a secular kind of framework devoid of revelation, he thinks communism at least has an end for all individuals, even if if it's only an individual end, at least there's something kind of metaphysical and transcendent, even if it's a false transcendence. Right. It's, it absolutely. Is a, it really it really tries to fill in religious gaps for people. Uh, Eli Wiesel wrote a novel. I forget the name of it, but it's a, it's a novel. Uh, there was a day, I think it was in 1950. When did Stalin die? I don't remember what year Stalin died, but it was towards the end of his reign of terror and there were a bunch of Jewish intellectuals who all had been Marxists and members of the party and activists, and they um, were all killed on the same day. There was like a couple thousand writers and such were killed. And so he does a he does a novel, a fictitious novel based on one of these things, and he really gets into the psychology of why so many Jews um, in Russia were attracted to communism because it offered some of the better ideals that the God of Abraham and you know also for us the God of Jesus Christ, some of the ideals that in a secular, um, really in, in, a, in a different kind of apocalyptic fashion. And, uh, you know, I'm reading a book right now about uh, the making of um, uh, High Noon and and a backdrop of the communists, the red hunting and uh, the McCarthy trials and all that. Uh, and one of the things that's really interesting is getting into the thought world of how many people you know, there was, the Communist Party was trying to infiltrate Hollywood, but the ideals in which they talked about the party, I mean, we, we're so far removed from that, but it was a alternative religious view. And we have to remember that totalitarianism had done so much more damage for so many people before they fully realized what exactly was going on. Now, some of them should have known more of what was going on in Stalin's Russia, but uh, it was an interesting kind of time. And I think it really illustrates the fact that a lot of what they believed was not rational at all. And there was no basis really historical or empirical or sociological to prove the kind of the Marxist ideal, but it was something that had great emotional and existential appeal for people. Yeah, and here's this contrast after the Marxism discussion. Babbitt, who I've never read, apparently wrote something about Buddhism that was pretty ideal. He says he wasn't comparing Buddha and Christ or Buddhism and Christianity, but Buddha, a, a sort of romanticized view of Buddha to sort of really decrepit, uh, uh, decadent forms of Christianity. Which is really well, well, really, I mean, that's a Halleck makes uh, quotes of Buddhist, uh, an Eastern Buddhist who says that a lot of Western Buddhism is really liberal Protestant. Yeah, right. And he has this, he has this reflection on D.H. Lawrence, who he says is the person that has marks of intelligence and lacks any evidence of being educated. <laughs> uh, and he says that 
what he being a civilized man actually arrived at was of course only original a religion of autotherapy. It was like the restless search of the hypochondriac for a climate in which he can be cured or in which at least he can bear his ailments more easily. Perhaps there is this motive in all of us, but if so, at least we can hope that our being aware of it helps and keep helps to keep it in its place. We can cry, thou son of David, have mercy on me. But we can be healed only if our faith is stronger than our desire to be healed. Yeah, you know, I I think there's a lot of benefit from mindfulness, which is really a, a a Buddhist idea that's kind of been popularized in different therapists. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of research behind, you know, what meditation does and things like that. And I I do think there's a whole realm of meditation and mindfulness that's just neutral. I mean, if you study um, <clears throat> Jewish mystics or the Desert Fathers or more advanced or more um, you know, more recent Christian mysticism, certain practices in uh, Islamic mysticism. There's a common ground there that has that you could call mindfulness, whatever you want to practicing the presence, whatever you want to call it. It's it's interesting though. Getting uh, getting to the state doesn't necessarily solve the underlying problems. It can help you deal with reality in a different way, but there. Sometimes there's no there there. But I mean, he actually, and he frames that as the problem of teleology, right? He basically says yeah. there's no, like, it, it, how do you know if it's making you a better person? Because what is better? What is good? What is what is the good? I mean, it's it's interesting. He's just asking some very basic questions about our need for teleology. I mean, there are a lot of people that are doing devastatingly terrible things to uh, others in in the context of industry and business and economics who are regular practices of yoga. Now, again, I think there's a lot of people who could use some yoga. And I'm not, I think it's like, I'm not, nothing against yoga or meditation, but that in and of itself does not transform the character of someone. It can help you cope better, but it doesn't necessarily change what you bring to the table to make decisions and things like that. Yeah. And he, he says, you know, that he sort of, Towards the end of the essay, he sort of wraps up what he's trying to do. And then he's like, look, I'll just summarize what I think are the principal characters of philosophies without revelation. The first characteristic is instability. And then he kind of, in the conclusion of that paragraph or two, he says that this is in part a healthy reaction against the lonely thinker. For all thinkers, the lonely one is likely to be the most controlled by the part of himself he knows nothing about. But however much we get together, we can by human means only alone arrive only at the kind of fixity and unanimity of belief which might be attributed to a hive of bees. Ultimately, apart from revelation, there would seem to be no criterion of philosophical credibility. And he says that the other character, second character is recurrence, that it seems that, that there's often these things like, for instance, the, the sort of pendulum swing between a kind of rationalism and mysticism, right? So, yeah. so you look at pre-Socratics, the Socratic movement, and you're trying to find sort of reasons, the end of all things, and then Plato can't get away from mystical right. allegories. And likewise, mysticism winds up with rationalist constru constructs and things like that. And the third, he thinks, is the tendency of each philosophy to evoke its opposite. Uh, and the last one is interesting. It's just immediate results. It's easy to invent philosophies that will appear to the uneducated to be more promising than Christianity, which will appear more feasible, valid, either for the inventors individually or for a limited group or under transient conditions of time and place. Secular philosophies must inevitably, in the atmosphere of the modern world, have a seductiveness with which Christianity cannot compete. They're always presented as new and as capable of setting things right at once. So this is this 
And you see, actually, you could say that in certain forms of revivalistic Christianity, there's this tendency, right? And in modern revivalistic, as opposed to Augustinian pilgrim mode, you know, where we're always kind of on the way and there's all readiness and not yetness, you know, there, there's a sort of emphasis on the immediacy and the here and now, like an over-realized emphasis on the payoff. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I listened to uh, your fascinating and exhausting interview <laughs> with Jeff Fitch. Dave, and, yeah, with Fitch. Dave yeah, Fitch, yeah. Dave Fitch, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, one of the things that um, strikes me, and I was just, uh, I remember I was like a middle school kid, and some older kids in our youth group went to a charismatic service. I didn't know what it was. And that was my first experience. And I remember my coming home, my parents said, well, what was it like? I go, well, it was a little different, but it was really nice. They let foreign people speak in the middle of the service, you know, <laughs> which was my first experience with speaking in tongues. But, uh, you know, I think there is an intuition in the charismatic movement or even uh, – conversion of revivalism or evangelicalism that actually is onto something um, that's actually real. But I also said where the charismatic movement went wrong is when they started writing books <laughs> because they were trying, they became a rationalizing mysticism and they just had no ground in hardly anything, not all of them. That's why I think it did a little better in the, in the Catholic Church. And, and, you know, there's still some really wonderful renewal parishes within the Catholic Church. But it it began to have to come and come up with an explanation. See, I, I thought your what you said about the trouble with groups like the Gospel Coalition, for instance, they talk about the cross all the time, um, but they're not they're not thinking of it in that kind of incarnational mystery of God suffering, but it becomes a you know a rational triumphalist. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's a theology of glory. It, it, it's a theology. It's not a theology of the cross. It's a theology about the cross, which becomes a theology of glory. It becomes a way that right. people kind of prop themselves over other people. And and no one no one standing there would have come away with a theology of glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I mean, I think that's I, I think that's a really interesting thing because I do think that's this balance of. Because, uh, you know, you and I talked a little bit, too. I mean, we can't really judge uh, the validity of what other people experience. I don't think the problem with evangelicalism, for instance, right now, or for that matter, for our, you know, you know, liberal mystics or, the exist, you know, our kind of uh, North American Buddhist whatever, I don't think the problem is their experience. It's the framework of what they put around it. And sometimes it's the codification of it. Sometimes the fact is they have no real grounding in 2,000 years of talking about this. And that's why I think what's really interesting, he starts out this essay talking about by grounding the idea of revelation in the, in the incarnation. Because that's where you have, um, not even the divine paradox, because it's not, it's both things are true at the same time. And in the, and in the mystery of, of fully human, fully divine, also in some levels, there's a tension there between the concrete and the mystical or the reasonable and the mystical. Those are your dichotomies. Yeah. And I think that's right. And he, you know, his words at the end of the essay are very, I mean, it's kind of his, his approach to how we think about this gulf between the secular world and the secular mind and Christian revelation. He says, 
any apologetic which presents the Christian faith as a preferable alternative to secular philosophy, which fights secularism on its own ground, is making a concession which is a preparation for defeat. Uh, can I just say, yeah. again, stop being an apologist. <laughs> stop being an apologist. Go ahead. Apologetic which proceeds from part to part of the body of Christian belief, testing each by itself according to secular standards of credibility and which attempts to constitute Christian belief as a body of acceptable parts so as to end by placing the least possible burden upon faith seems to me to be a reversal of the proper method. Should we not first try to apprehend the meaning of Christianity as a whole, leading the mind to contemplate first the great gulf between the Christian mind and the secular habits of thought and feeling into which, so far as we fail to watch and pray, we all tend to fall. I think that is insightful and profound and worth much consideration in the sense of so often what the church finds itself doing is what he's saying, sort of like looking at the faith piecemeal by whatever sort of issues or doctrines or beliefs are at the hot button flash fire at the moment, as opposed to trying to get a sense of the whole uh, stemming, you know, flowing from the incarnate story of Israel and Jesus apostles and all of its comprehensive vision for uh, for the human life and, and, and sense of understanding and meaning. And I, I think that that is well worth considering. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time working with churches and I have a lot of diverse churches. And I can tell you, <clears throat> whatever the challenge any of them are facing and challenges my own congregations have faced, no congregation I've ever come across has a problem because they're spending too much time meditating on the life of Christ as revealed in the Gospels and praying towards God and Christ that that may be revealed more in their life. No one is reading too much Bible and no one is praying too much. You've heard it here first. <laughs> and eat your yogurt, too. <laughs> you know, If you eat yogurt while you're reading the Bible, who knows that, that could be amazing. In, a, in an article we talked about a few weeks ago that Rusty Reader wrote called The Coming of the Strong Guy, it says... Um, He's talking about populism in Europe and the United States. It says, put simply, populism, or populism, rather, wishes for something sacred in public life. National heritage is the obvious example. Yet our political culture has been so thoroughly shaped by a pattern of weakening that it cannot accommodate this desire for the sacred. And I think this is one of, um, this is one of Eliot's concerns, that, that basically, that outside of a kind of, uh, sense of revelation. He thinks that British society and, and society in the West is is really impoverished, and it, and, I, and I think there there is a place for a kind of public theology that would that would take seriously. Yeah, and I don't I don't know the person. I've never read anything, so I'm only using this as a metaphor. But there is a reason that the Bible answer man couldn't find the answers he was looking for in the Bible. He needed to become part of a tradition that actively every week lives out the incarnation. Now, again, every tradition can do that. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, no one tradition has a monopoly of living out the incarnation. But uh, the faith is not to be uh, 12 steps for better living. It's not to give us answers for life. It is the bread of life itself. Yeah, it's good news, not good advice. <laughs> Amen. Pulling down, don't hide 
ocean that you can't see but you can smell and the sound of waves crash down I am no superman I have no reasons for you I am no hero oh that's for sure but I do know one thing it's where you are it's where I belong I do know Questions under the stars Well, if along the way You are growing weary You can rest with me Until a brighter day Go.